Welcome to the Classic Speeches Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, bringing you treasured talks from 70 years of BYU devotionals. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. At the outset, I want to make one thing clear. I love competition, and I like winning more than losing. My friends with whom I play racquetball know that I hate to miss even a single shot, although I miss many, and much less lose a game or a series of games. I'm a quietly competitive kind of guy, but I've been perplexed by the idea that's current in our time and among many members of the church as well that winning is everything. I believe that in an ultimate sense, the eternal sense, this is true. But along the path, as we work our way toward eternal salvation, is winning, is success, is making more money, is having the highest degrees, is holding the top position, is being assistant to the mission president, is having more baptisms while serving as a missionary, really what life is all about. My talk today centers on the worth of serving well and doing our best and then allowing the Lord to count the value of our sacrifice. In the early 1960s, shortly after I married my wife, Joanne, an important experience happened in our family. Uh, my older brother, Todd, was selected as a member of the BYU College Bowl team to participate on national television. He was made captain of the four-member team, uh, something our family considered a wonderful distinction. I'm not sure how BYU people of earlier eras rank that event, but many of us considered the four-win, one-loss run of our team to be one of the most important happenings in the intellectual history of BYU. We thought it put BYU on the map as a school of better than solid academic distinction. Yet, when the team flew into the airport and was greeted by a large and enthusiastic crowd following their defeat in the fifth uh, round, Todd said something like, Why are you all here? We lost. Well, within a few days, Elder Harold B. Lee gave a devotional address here on campus and mentioned not only the team's four wins, but also its final loss. Again, I can't remember the exact words, but his message was that sometimes we learn more from defeat than from victory. I've thought many times about Elder Lee's brief message, really before his devotional address. Life did not end with the defeat that Sunday afternoon. For the members of the College Bowl team, it was actually just getting started. I don't know what happened to two of the four members of the team, but I've watched my brother's career as a faculty member and administrator here at BYU with interest and family pride. His good friend from the team, David Stone, is just completing three years as mission president and has recently been called to the second quorum of the seventy. No, life did not end with that single loss. 
In our extremely competitive world, we sometimes have the impression ground into us that if we are not number one, we are not anyone at all. The national champions are remembered with fame and glory, while whomever ended in second place is forgotten or, in the eyes of some rabid fans, tossed into the dust heaps of history. I have borrowed the title for my talk today from a book by the historian of Japan, Ivan Morris. It is titled, The Nobility of Failure. In his introduction, Professor Morris wrote, and I quote, Our red-toothed, red-clawed world attuned to the struggle for survival and dominance reveres success, and its typical heroes are men and women whose cause has triumphed. Their victory is never without travail, and often its price is the hero's life. Yet, whether he survives to bask in the glory of his achievements or dies proudly, the effort and sacrifice will, in the most pragmatic sense, have been worthwhile. Today, I have chosen to share some thoughts on the worth of not being number one. Or better said, I wish to emphasize that what appears to be failure is sometimes the greatest success. Only time and eternity reveal the greater truth. I was impressed with part of Mitt Romney's message to the graduates of the Marriott School of Management this past April. Contrary to the advice sometimes given to graduates, saying that if they will work hard, they will surely succeed and grow rich, he forthrightly stated that even though we may work hard, keep the rules, cross every T, and eat everything on our plates, we might not be successes in life. A good deal depends on fate or luck or circumstance. Sometimes the good guys do not win, uh, or so it appears. He said his own father, Governor George Romney, following his defeat in his attempt to gain the Republican Party's uh, nomination for the presidency, um, had this reaction. I quote, he said, I aspired, and though I achieved not, I was satisfied, unquote. I've also been impressed with the post-presidency years of President Jimmy Carter, who has done so much for our nation and the world. Defeat is not the end for truly good men and women. Today, I will share with you in brief form the story of 17 men who served the church in a cause they considered a failure. The cause was the mission of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to India, Burma, and Siam, now called Thailand, between 1851 and 1856. <clears throat> I first became aware of this great chapter in church history when I wrote about it in my master's thesis. Recently, however, with many more sources and resources, I have rewritten the story of the mission. Last summer, my wife and I, in company with Shaharam and Sarah Paksima, who are great, wonderful BYU students who served as our guides and helpers, we traveled to India to retrace the footsteps of those early missionaries. Our goal was to visit as many of the cities and cantonments, villages, shrines, temples, 
and roads where the missionaries of the church's East India Mission served in the 1850s, as was possible. Uh, the illustrations that you're going to see, by the way, aside from the map, are all from the 19th century. Uh, they were Some of them date as early as 1834, which was only about 36 years before the mission opened, others as late as the 1890s. Uh, they won't necessarily follow in perfect context with my remarks, but I will try to point out one or two that I think are particularly uh, important. I'm trying to paint a verbal picture, uh, I mean a, a visual picture as well as a verbal picture of that experience. Wherever we went, that is uh, Latter-day Pilgrims last summer, uh, we looked for the imprint of the early missionaries' steps. Uh, frankly, not much remained after 150 years, but most of the cantonments, that is the military bases or camps, uh, were still in place. We were surprised uh, that these camps were so large, more like towns than camps. Our missionaries visited cantonments wherever they went in India. Unfortunately, uh, <clears throat> because of military and government policies regarding preaching on cantonment, the missionaries were largely rejected and unable to uh, have influence among the European military personnel. But I think I'm getting a little bit ahead of the story. I need to at least tell you the main parts of what happened. <clears throat> In 1849, two young Latter-day Saint sailors, uh, George Barber and Benjamin Ritchie, neither of whom held the priesthood, sailed from Liverpool, England, uh, to Calcutta, India. Uh, because their ship needed repairs, it was put in dry dock, and they spent some time at a home for sailors. There they met a scripture reader named Maurice White. Their conversations with him regarding their newfound faith led them into company with a group called the Plymouth Brethren, the young sailors taught the restored gospel to their new friends, and soon several of them were converted. But because they held no priesthood uh, authority, Barbara and Ritchie had to leave their converts unbaptized when their ship sailed from Calcutta. Some months later, written requests for uh, living witnesses arrived in Liverpool from Calcutta. Church leaders decided to ask Joseph Richards a church member who was an elder, to visit the Plymouth Brethren on his next trip to Calcutta. He was a sailmaker on the merchant ship Gloriosa. In June 1851, Richards met the church's friends in Calcutta and baptized four of them, uh, <clears throat> James Patrick Meek. This is a picture of Meek. Uh, he and these other three people, his wife uh, Math and Matthew McCune, uh, his wife's name was Mary, Ma Mary Ann, and Maurice White, who is a scripture reader. Now, these were the, the first uh, members of the church. And I wanted you to particularly pay attention to that picture that was just furnished to me by a, a family member in Kansas. Uh, Richards ordained White an elder and called him as president of the Wanderer's Branch. 
these new members of the first were the first to be baptized as Latter-day Saints in all of Asia. The Wanderers Branch was the first church unit in Asia. Richards remained in Calcutta for only uh, two weeks and then returned with his ship to England. Based on this uh, small success, Elder Lorenzo Snow, who was then president of the church's missionary work in Italy, Switzerland, and Malta, decided to include India in his jurisdiction. Now, if you know anything about geography, this is a pretty good jump. Uh, He sent Englishmen William Willis to Calcutta and Scotsman uh, Hugh Findlay to Bombay. Uh, This is a picture of uh, William Willis furnished to me by one of our uh, good staff people here on campus, Charlene Cutler. Anyway, Willis arrived in Calcutta on Christmas Day, 1851. Findlay arrived in Bombay, which is totally across the subcontinent, by March or April of 1852. Initially, Elder Willis had wonderful success. He was greeted well and warmly by six members of the church, White, the branch president, I should now say former branch president, had left for England. But James Patrick Meek and Matthew McCune had taken up the work and had baptized several others. Meek was constructing a meeting house in the heart of Calcutta, and I've got to say as an aside, this is the first LDS meeting house in all of Asia as well. Uh, Elder Willis was pleased when representatives of various groups of Indians sought him out and exhibited interest in his message. Before long, his ministry took him 20 miles or so beyond Calcutta in several directions. Uh, He regularly wrote to church leaders in Liverpool regarding his successes. In January of 1852, he wrote that he was, quote, bounding with grateful emotions, unquote, that he had been called to preach the gospel in India. He actually kind of thought he was going to single-handedly, with the Lord's help, convert the whole nation which was at that time about 250 million people. Uh, Anyway, he began baptizing groups of Indians, all former Christians, mostly Baptists. Uh, Four months later, in May 1852, he reported church membership of 189. Most of these were uh, native farmers, and there were about 19 Caucasians among that group. Willis's seeming success and positive reports to England led Elder Snow to carry a positive recommendation to the leading brethren in Salt Lake City that the East India Mission should be enlarged. On August 28th and 29th, 1852, the church held a special conference in Salt Lake City. The first presidency at that conference called 108 missionaries to many states of the United States and other nations. Nine elders were called to India, and four were called to Siam, or Thailand. They left Salt Lake City a couple months later, at the end of October, and traveled south to San Bernardino, California, by wagon train in a group of about 40 missionaries. At San Bernardino, they sold their wagons and their stock and sent their money home. Then it was on through Los Angeles and down to the harbor at uh, San Pedro, where they found a small ship to carry them to San Francisco. After several weeks, uh, nope, that's not the right picture, but uh, anyway, after several weeks of unsuccessful fundraising there, 
the elders were blessed to receive a large contribution from a California member named John M. Horner. They could now continue on to India. They sailed through the Golden Gate on January 28, 1853, and 86 days later arrived at Calcutta. They didn't ever drop anchor for those 86 days. Captain Zenas Windsor, who was a good Christian man, uh, and his shipmates uh, provided a wonderful uh, trip for, for the missionaries. But on arriving in India, the elders faced disappointing news. Uh, elders Willis and Joseph Richards, who was the, the sailmaker, he had now come back uh, as a full-time missionary. Uh, he arrived back in the summer of 52. Anyway, they, these two brethren had left Calcutta to preach the gospel at various cities and cantonments up the Ganges Basin. Uh, by this time, April of 53, they were in the vicinity of uh, Delhi. You probably know New Delhi. Delhi was the old part of the city, about 900 to 1,000 miles away from Calcutta. Furthermore, almost all of the Native Indians members in and around Calcutta had already fallen away. Uh, there was also an apostasy among the European saints. Only six rate members remained of an expected 200. The problem among the Indians related to their expectation to be paid to be members of the church. Now, for those of us who understand that our missionaries go without personal script, we understand that the Indians had this backwards. Uh, but uh, anyway, the, the issue was really quite complicated, and I don't have time to give you a whole lesson on Indian culture, but let me say this. Indian converts were outcast when they joined any Christian church. They lost their place in society. They had no former social relationships, no occupation, no means of financial support, no place to live, no community political rights or power. When they became Christians, they in effect became part of a Christian quasi-caste. Their occupation was now to be Christians, with all that implied. To be Christian was now their work. Conceivably, uh, if asked what they did for a living, they might have answered, I am a Christian. I'm stretching this just a little bit, but I, I wanted to make the point. When they went for, from denomination to denomination, or from mission to mission seeking higher compensation, they were doing uh, a somewhat reasonable thing within the context of their own experience and, and circumstances. They wanted the best pay they could get for doing their new caste occupation, being Christian. But this reality did not help the disappointed elders <clears throat> when they found this out. They considered these people to be hypocritical apostates and developed a great distrust for Indians. Among the European members of the church, <clears throat> there was another problem, polygamy. At the same special conference at which the elders received their calls, the church had made public its doctrine and practice of plural marriage. Word of this announcement arrived in Calcutta via the mail steamer three weeks before the elders arrived there. Polygamy was the shout heard round the world. The new members in Calcutta were deeply troubled by the doctrine. 
and some apostatized. Um, but that was just the beginning. Nearly everywhere they went throughout the subcontinent, the elders were persecuted and rejected for their beliefs. But there was nothing to do. Now they were but to go on. They were there. Soon after they arrived, Mission President Nathaniel V. Jones assigned the other eight India elders to places around the country. Um, <clears throat> I know the radio and TV audience won't be able to see this, but uh, this is Calcutta right up here. This is the Ganges Basin. Delhi's about up here. This is Bombay over here on the west coast. And my pointer is fading, Madras down the south. Burma over here, and it's dead and gone. Siam over here. Uh, I've been trying to find some batteries for this pointer for weeks. But uh, anyway, uh, two elders were assigned to go up the Ganges. Uh, they eventually traveled uh, over a thousand miles to Delhi and beyond. Um, two, three actually were sent to Madras. Two were asked to go uh, a few miles north to Chinsura. Uh, they were there to await word from the Bombay side of the mission. And Jones and a companion uh, remained in Calcutta. Elder Chauncey Walker West, uh, who presided over the four Siam-bound elders, having learned that the way was hedged up uh, to travel overland to Siam, there was a war going on in Burma right at this moment, made the decision to try to teach the gospel in Ceylon, modern Sri Lanka, and then when the way opened to, uh, to move on. He and Elder Benjamin F. Dewey went briefly to Ceylon and then to Bombay, uh, where Elder uh, Hugh Findlay uh, was laboring. They stayed there a few months and then sailed home around the south side of Sumatra. I wish my pointer worked, but anyway, it's right down here <laughs> and all the way around the east side of Borneo <laughs> and then up through the South China Sea uh, to Hong Kong and then finally back to San Francisco. One of the Siam elders, uh, Ellum Luddington by name, made it to Bangkok briefly, but was persecuted by Christians and Buddhists and finally fled after 127 days in the country. His voyages home were frightening and life-threatening. The fourth Siam elder was Levi Savage Jr. He spent most of his mission alone in Burma, where he learned to speak and write Burmese. On the way home from his mission, he joined the Willie Handcart Company. It was Savage who warned that group not to go on because of the lateness of the date. Nevertheless, he went forward with that ill-fated company of immigrants and did his best to alleviate the suffering when it came, all this after a mission to Burma and, and India. Ultimately, the India elders visited most of the important cities on the subcontinent. They were not totally without success. They baptized well over 100 converts, 20 or so of whom emigrated to Zion. But they also saw a number of their converts weaken, wane, and wash away uh, with the waves of criticism and persecution. One of the most difficult problems for the elders was the news of missionary success from Britain and Denmark. 
In both places, thousands of people were joining the church and moving to Utah to be with the saints. The India missionaries discussed among themselves and also in their letters to the British church periodical, the Millennial Star, their sense of failure when compared with the truly fruitful fields. They did their best to explain that matters in India were not like those in England. They, they weren't. They occasionally complained in their journals and wished for a better place to teach the gospel. Frankly, while traveling in India last, uh, last year, I found it difficult. There are many, many people, and conditions leave much to be desired. I remember picking away our picking away our way along the jam-packed overworked sidewalk in downtown Calcutta. I found myself wondering how anyone survives with so much heat, so many buses and trucks belching black exhaust, so many people, so many taxis, so much humidity, so little sidewalk. How can anyone stand the constant pressure of hawkers and the pull at uh, one's trousers by beggars asking for bakshis? Getting across the street was like swimming perpendicular to a massive school of enormous fuming fish. Uh, looking upstream or down at the traffic was almost like watching a, a water ballet, a complex ballet of vehicles weaving in and out. How can people drive on such streets, I thought. How can anyone get anything done? Did our early missionaries really <clears throat> walk these very streets? I asked myself, well, no. The streets they walked have been gone a long time. But they walked and worked in this very place and many other places much like it. The early elders did not fight exhaust fumes uh, or the, as many people in the streets, but the heat and humidity were almost unbearable. Poverty was ever-present. Transportation was tediously slow and difficult. <clears throat> and diseases common to tropical climates, malaria, cholera, dysentery, uh, and other problems were a real difficulty. Now we, last summer, traveled from place to place on sturdy, uh, that's my euphemism for not luxurious, sturdy air-conditioned trains. Uh, when we rode through the countryside following the routes of the elders, we went in comfortable air-conditioned automobiles. And when we retired for the night, we slept in clean hotel rooms after eating clean, tasty food. My heart goes out to our early missionaries who traveled so far on foot or by bullock's cart. Many nights they slept under, on the ground, under trees, or in abandoned sheds, not knowing what kind of varmints or poisonous snakes might share their rustic rest, but trusting in Almighty God that he would spare their lives another night. Among Europeans in India... Our missionaries uh, seem to have been the only ones who walked and carried their own bags and belongings. Others, other Europeans, felt it was beneath their dignity and their station to stoop to such labor. Villagers found our missionaries odd and often stared at them as they plodded through their dusty or <clears throat> muddy paths. Lacking fresh water, our elders sometimes drank from wells, but usually drank from tanks, simple reservoirs used by the natives, uh, native Indians to catch monsoon rainwater. Uh, 
By the end of the year, these reservoirs were rank and unsavory. At times, the temperatures were so high that sunstroke was almost unavoidable. Most Englishmen in India at that time would not leave their bungalows between 10 o'clock in the morning and the cool of evening. But the elders usually had no place to hide from the sun. One of the elders, William Carter, suffered so miserably in the heat that President Jones sent him home after only a couple months in the country. This action probably preserved uh, the life of the elderly Elder Carter. He was 42 at the time. To summarize, the elders faced a number of problems. The single greatest uh, deterrent to their success was the then accepted doctrine of plural marriage. A second great problem was the general refusal of the cantonment commanders to allow the elders to preach in those areas. Closely associated with this problem was the wholesale rejection of the elders by most of the Europeans throughout the country. They, the Europeans, were an arrogant and haughty group who considered themselves above the elders and most other men. Uh, there was much corruption and immorality among the European civil servants and the soldiers. But was everything dark and evil? Uh, <clears throat> were there no good people to assist the elders? Actually, there were some wonderful people, native Indians and Europeans, who came to their aid and made their lives bearable and at times satisfying. In almost every city, a few generous individuals provided places to sleep, rooms in which to preach, and food to eat. Others even paid for the publication of tracts, handbills, and pamphlets. Elder Skelton wrote that the only times he went hungry were those when he didn't want to ask for food. The Lord always provided if Elder Skelton would ask. And in each major place, Calcutta, Madras, Bombay, Delhi, Pune, Karachi, Hyderabad, converts to the restored gospel gave freely of their personal resources to the support of the Lord's purposes. Perhaps the kindest people as a group were the captains of ships uh, and river steamers. By count, the India and Siam elders sailed on at least 49 ocean-going ships and river steamers. I think the longest voyage was about 140 days. Uh, many were fortunately shorter. In a number of instances, the captains took the elders gratis or at greatly reduced fares. Six of the elders sailed around the world without purse or scrip. In closing, what can, we, can be said of the East India and Siam missions? Relatively few converts were made. Certainly, the missions did not change India or Siam. One of the important facts is that all 17 elders lived through the experience. Now, that may sound trite or trivial today, but I doubt if we could find another group of European men of similar age who went to India from England and America at that time who did not lose up to half of their number. Uh, in a similar period of time. Uh, diseases and debauchery uh, took many lives. Our elders suffered miserably with malaria, dysentery, 
fevers of various kinds, parasites, other problems, but they were blessed to survive and return home to their loved ones. In addition to the problems related to health were those connected with travel. Various of the elders experienced harrowing times at sea, but they returned home safely. Probably the most important observation we can make in historical retrospect is that the mission strengthened the missionaries' testimonies. They accepted the call from the Lord and did their best to establish the restored gospel in their mission field. As I have reviewed their journals and their writings, I have not found a single complaint or question regarding the wisdom of Elder Lorenzo Snow or President Brigham Young sending them to India or Siam. The elders were obedient. They trusted in the Lord and in their leaders. Among these elders, several announced publicly upon their arrival in Utah that they were ready to accept any future assignments from their priesthood leaders. For example, Elder West wrote, quote, I feel grateful to my Father in heaven that my life has been spared to mingle again with the saints in these peaceful valleys. And I now report myself on hand for duty whenever the servants of God call, for the priesthood is my law, unquote. I should mention that these men were church members with considerable experience. Most were married. The average age was 32. Richard Ballantyne had already founded the Sunday schools of the church before his call to India. Three of these elders had been in the Mormon battalion. Others had fought in the Battle of Nauvoo in 1846, and still others had helped construct the Nauvoo Temple. One was among the first group of pioneers to enter the valley of the Great Salt Lake. All of them died in the faith, and most of them lived long lives and produced great posterity. Another point is that even though convert baptisms were few, about 20 members emigrated to Utah to be part of the commanded gathering. The descendants of the Meeks, the McCunes, Booths, Hefferons, Tates, Davies, and others who came to Zion are grateful for the missionary service rendered to their ancestors in India. Finally, the church was obedient to the Lord's commandment to take the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. It was not easy to go to places like India, Burma, Ceylon, or Siam, but the Lord had commanded it. Did it matter if the elders did not have success? Not really. The Lord was trying his church, and he was trying his people. To some, the mere fact of going may not seem that important, but it was. In his prayer of dedication, dedicating the Hong Kong Temple in May 1996, President Gordon B. Hinckley noted the faithfulness of the three elders who served in that unsuccessful mission at the same time the elders were in India. He prayed, and I quote, We are grateful for the faith of those who nearly a century and a half ago first came to Hong Kong as missionaries of thy church. Their labors were difficult and largely without reward. But their coming was an evidence of the outreach of our people to all the nations of the earth in harmony with the commandments of the, thy beloved Son that the gospel should be preached to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. 
unquote. In a similar way, we can honor the elders who served in India. They did not succeed impressively, but they went and they served and they remained faithful. Observers of the martyred Joseph Smith 155 years ago might have found his life a failure if they had seen his limp and lifeless body on the ground at Carthage Jail. And many who looked on the Savior as he hung dying on the cross might have considered his message a failure as well and his mission a failure. But time has shown the apparent temporary failure of Joseph Smith to be but the prelude of the glorious growth of the Lord's work. And the Savior's apparent failure at Calvary was, in actuality, the greatest conquest in all eternity, the conquest over sin and death, that we may learn to distinguish between what appears to be success and what is success in eternal terms is my prayer. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Classic Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including recent speeches, updated weekly with new talks given on BYU campus, as well as other speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.